subjects to rickets, had pot bellies and bad teeth, and were slow-witted and peaceful. For long periods, the history of Ecuador has been a dichotomy of mountain and coast. In the past, the bustling tropical port of Guayaquil opposed the highly conservative Catholic governments that ruled from highland Quito. In more recent times, the Costeños, coastal people, who, because of the prosperity of their port and the valuable produce of their fertile lowland fields, feel that they are the mainstay of the national economy, have been resentful that Quito should control the nation's finances. Often, revolutions against the authorities at Quito have begun in Guayaquil. In Latin America, mountains have cut off the main centers of population from one another, nor have South America's huge river systems served in any significant degree to join the peoples together. The Magdalena, Orinoco, and Amazon may be busy with river boats, but these rivers are separated even from other parts of the very countries through which they flow by mountains and by jungles. So great are the distances that the Paraguay-Paraná-Plata system has not rescued the landlocked Republic of Paraguay 1,000 miles upstream from its isolation. From early times, expanses of sparsely populated land, arid cordilleras, unhealthy jungles, lay between the main inhabited regions. Spanish settlement perpetuated that pattern. And when, in the first quarter of the 19th century, the movement for emancipation spread through Spain's dependencies, each of the major population clusters had its own revolutionary leaders. In most cases, those leaders secured self-government for their own region, and therefore the boundaries of the modern republics generally pass through the traditionally underpopulated zones. History may not repeat itself, but geography constantly does. Railways and roads run from each country's interior productive districts to its own ports, but even today, land communication between the individual republics is little developed. Travel by railway between the Atlantic and Pacific coasts is slow, and services are infrequent. The train journey from Buenos Aires to Antofagasta on the far side of the Andes takes five days. The exchange of goods within Latin America, such as that of Argentine grain for Chilean copper or for Brazilian coffee and tropical fruits, is still effected chiefly by sea. In many parts of Latin America, the building of a railway did not cause any profound change in the life of the communities that it reached. This was particularly true of the towns and villages in the desert that stretches for nearly 2,000 miles along the western flank of the Andean Cordillera. In Chile, mining towns such as Calama and Copiapo had railway connections at a relatively early date, but the people's isolation was almost unaffected. They still remained pioneering communities, each dependent on snow falling in the heights of the Andes for the supply of water to a small river which alone made the rainless valley habitable. H.T. Buckle declared that nowhere else in the world were natural obstacles so formidable as in Brazil. Even today, his remarks apply to some parts of Latin America. The mountains are too high to scale, the rivers are too wide to bridge, he wrote.
The progress of agriculture is stopped by impassable forests, and the harvests are destroyed by innumerable insects. When the aeroplane came to Latin America, it was received gladly as a delayed but deserved compensation for the obstacles presented by nature. But the economic benefits of air travel are, as yet, very limited. A Civilization in the Making The Latin American republics differ among themselves in many ways. Each has its own national traditions and heroes, its own personality. For example, the traveler who crosses the Rio de la Plata from Buenos Aires to Montevideo feels that he has come from a rather arrogant city to one of less tension and less pretension, although nothing but an estuary divides them. Nevertheless, the Latin Americans in general have much in common. They still have a powerful Iberian heritage. They occupy together one vast area, prolific in natural wealth, prolific in deserts, which is far distant from the regions to the north, where the course of modern history has been decided. The whole of Latin America, until recently, has been on the margin of world history. But the gap is narrowing, and most Latin Americans who have thought about it believe that when they are ready, or are compelled, to play a really active part in world affairs, their intervention will somehow be distinctively Latin American. The Latin Americans are not merely transplanted Europeans. The Indians of the Plateau and the Highland Valleys taught the Spanish invaders to adapt themselves to strange surroundings, to sleep in hammocks and to paddle canoes, to smoke tobacco, to use the local medicinal herbs, to eat maize and potatoes. Thus the Spaniards entered into close relationship with the new land. By concubinage and marriage with the Indian women, a new mixture of races was produced. The new man, the mestizo, was neither Indian nor Spanish, and this was to be one of the causes of political friction in later years. In Brazil, the Portuguese at first did not discover any precious metals, and the local Indian population was much too small to supply sufficient labor for profitable agriculture. Therefore, Negro slaves were imported from Africa, and Negro women nursed the children of the Portuguese landowners, lulling them to sleep with old melodies from their African forests. The Portuguese were already familiar with tropical conditions in Africa and India, and the Negroes, by mingling with them, helped the process of adjustment. An impetuous, easy-going people grew from this association. The Europeans, of course, made their own contribution to Latin America and to the embryo Latin American outlook. They brought their own animals, horses, cattle, sheep, their plants, science, and industry. They added their own culture, the Catholic religion, and their laws. They introduced a spirit of optimism. Long before the birth of Columbus... Europeans had imagined that an earthly paradise, a land of plenty with a perfect climate, lay to the west across the Atlantic Ocean. In the early 14th century, its features had been defined in an English poem. Out to sea, far west of Spain, lies the land men call Cocaine. No land that under heaven is, for wealth and beauty, comes near this. 
Nearly 200 years later, Columbus wrote of the Caribbean landscape and described the abundance and fertility. From the other side of the ocean, he sent home his heartening message. The island and all the others are very fertile, to an extraordinary degree. There are many rivers, good and large, trees of a thousand kinds, and I am told that they never lose their foliage. Some of them were in flower, and some with fruit. It is a land to be desired, and once seen, never to be left. Among its other attractions, the mythical land of cocaine had offered precious metals and priceless stones. The bank about those streams with gold and with rich jewels gleams. Columbus was able to reassure his promoters at home, even in that respect. From the West Indies, he wrote, Many of these people, all men, came from the shore, and I was anxious to learn whether they had gold. I saw that some of them wore little pieces of gold in their perforated noses. I learned by signs that there was a king in the south, or south of the island, who owned many vessels filled with gold. The New World was rich indeed, but it was also formidable. The conquistadores who survived the tropical diseases endured the rigors of the Andes and subdued the local tribes who greatly outnumbered them, had a self-confidence that is still a trait of the Spanish-American character today. Men who had taken part in the conquest now behaved almost as though they were of aristocratic standing, although usually they came from quite humble families. When St. Teresa's brother returned to Spain from Quito with great wealth after 34 years of absence in the New World, he let himself be called Don, as he was wont to do in America. This act was a matter of much gossip in the provincial society of Avila.